If you're listening to this, you're probably wondering what the heck happened to the middle of culture. Well, this week, Eden was out of town, and I decided that instead of just not posting anything, what I would do is I would add in the most recent episode of the Middle-Aged Metalcast, so that if those uh, who are listening to this want to hear a little bit of what I have to say about some weird stuff that happened to metal in the 90s, you can listen. And otherwise, if you want to skip, don't worry, I won't be offended. But we will be back in two weeks, and we'll share with you our thoughts on something truly, truly fantastic. middle-aged metal cast it has been quite some time since i got around to recording an episode and the last few months have been difficult in some ways they've been weird in a few others but mostly this is something that i've been wanting to get back to and hopefully be much more regular with what i thought we would do today though is kind of dive into something that i've been thinking about a little bit over the last couple of weeks and that is just how weird the 90s were when it came to heavy metal. You know, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, and a lot of times I'll still find myself thinking of metal as a relatively young genre. However, if we think about it, I mean, it really is over half a century old now. And in a lot of ways, it's as strong as it ever was. However, that wasn't always the case. You know, when we think about a brief history of heavy metal, it really starts with Black Sabbath. Sure, we had other bands, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and other bands who were exploring the heavier elements of blues and rock that were emerging at that time. But it really was with the release in 1970 of both the albums Black Sabbath and its follow-up album Paranoid that really entrenched heavy metal gave us this newer, darker, heavier style of rock music. Throughout that decade, it continued to grow and in some ways gave birth to some of metal's most enduring and important bands. For example, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. In the 80s, we saw a huge growth in metal, with some of it really expanding into the mainstream and a lot of newer sort of sub-genres of metal emerging onto the scene. One of the ones that really gained a lot of popularity was sort of the hair and glam metal bands that began to dominate the airwaves. At the same time, there were a number of more underground bands and things that were heavier and darker that were starting to flourish, but they weren't getting the same attention. Amongst these new and emerging uh, sort of subgenres, thrash metal really was one of those that that gained life during the 80s. It took a lot of the elements of the uh, sort of, you know, British heavy metal bands, again, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and it decided to get angry. Riffs were faster, more aggressive. Vocals, while in many cases still being sung, had a much harsher edge to them, a little bit more uh, distortion added in. Lyrically, the music often really seemed to start looking towards some of the darker aspects of humanity, isolation, alienation, uh, societal injustice, and it really went after these topics with a sense of anger. 
You know, this really wasn't mainstream music, certainly not in its inception. Early thrash releases such as Metallica's Kill Em All, Slayer's Hell Awaits, and Megadeth's Killing Is My Business and Business in Good just added to the stigma against this emerging genre. Yeah, the 80s demonstrated both a boom in metal as well as an increase in criticism levied against that music. But then things got weird and the 90s came. As the 80s wound to a close, the sheen of glam and hair metal was really starting to wear off. The sleaze, the trash, the outright misogyny of the genre was really starting to wear thin. Personally, I found myself just not interested in those bands anymore. It wasn't just the style, but it really was sort of the whole attitude embodied and embraced by those bands. At the same time, some of metal's biggest, but at the time still not mainstream acts, were being catapulted into the spotlight. Nowhere was this more evident than on the 1991 release Metallica, also known as the Black Album. The Black Album burst onto the scene with a much more accessible sound, powered in large part by the cleaner, more full production that really was kind of under the hands of Bob Rock. Enter Sandman, many other tracks became staples of not just rock radio, but they were being played on Top 40 radio as well. Metallica began to sell out stadiums. And you know, the Black Album really has been certified 16 times platinum in the U.S. There is no way that degree of success wasn't going to have repercussions in other areas. You know, just one year later, Megadeth would drop Countdown to Extinction, Stripping away much of the aggression and the technicality of its predecessor, the incredible album Rust in Peace, which to this day I think is one of, if not the greatest thrash metal albums of all time. It too became a commercial success for the band. You know, I don't know if Dave Mustaine would admit this, especially given the history between him and Metallica, but I can't imagine that the change in direction wasn't at least in some degree a response to Metallica's monumental success the previous year. Suddenly, here we had some of the 80s most aggressive and influential metal bands releasing music that had so much of the hard edge sanded off. This was a type of metal that was easily digestible. It was widely palatable and it seemed designed to appeal to the masses. Look, I will never begrudge a band or an artist's commercial success. But at the same time, listening to these albums, I don't know, to me, there's just something missing. They just didn't have that edge, that it, that, that grit, that, I don't know, they were just missing what seemed to make thrash metal thrash metal. But this was not the only force that was at work here. Amidst the commercial success of bands like Megadeth and Metallica, we saw another change in the music landscape. With the death of glam metal and hair metal, we saw a huge surge in the popularity of the grunge movement. This really was pioneered by bands such as Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and these bands were all emerging, many of them from the Seattle area, with huge success. If we look at albums such as Nevermind, 10, and Dirt, these all hit in the early 90s and took the airwaves by storm. That polish and glam of the 80s was gone. 
Here was a raw edge, a sense of frustration at the world, and a desire to expose the ugly underbelly of society with music that was, in some ways, equally ugly. I'll never forget reading lyrics for songs like Jeremy or Man in the Box the first time and realizing that these really were lashing out and exposing some of the major problems in our society. With the advent of grunge, the coffin lid closed and was slammed shut on the polished, pristine sound of the glam of the 80s. Gone were the shredding guitar solos. Songs weren't likely to be about girls or parties. They were more likely to be about darker things, relationships falling apart, people themselves falling apart. If we look at the album Dirt by Alice in Chains, it is just one long document of a man's spiral into his addiction. This music landscape was changing, and friends of mine who outright rejected metal previously were now sharing copies of Metallica, Nevermind, and Bad Motorfinger. And in the midst of this, there was a significant amount of really what I would have considered real metal that was fading. But then things got really weird. You know, it was 1994. It had been a crazy few years for metal and heavy music in general. Metallica was still riding the success of the Black Album, touring across the world, selling out stadiums. Nirvana, despite their insane success only a few years earlier, was dealing with the suicide of Kurt Cobain in the spring of that year. Alice in Chains was dealing with Lane Staley's heroin addiction. And Megadeth was preparing to release their most commercial and pop-oriented album to date, Euthanasia. Near the end of October of 1994, an album was released. It was the debut self-titled album from a California band. Korn was unleashed upon a mostly unsuspecting populace. Not only was it still dirty and raw in some ways like the grunge, but it borrowed with elements of hip-hop, rap, and you know things like record scratching that just hadn't really been part of metal prior to this, with the exception of really, really rare things. For example, Anthrax's version of Bring the Noise earlier that decade. Uh, subsequent releases from bands such as Korn, as well as others, Limp Bizkit, Seven Dust, Stained, and really culminating with the uh, 2000 release of Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park, would create a juggernaut of musical power that we still see the effects of today. In the midst of this shifting landscape, we saw some classic metal bands really struggle. Metallica would continue to garner commercial success with releases such as Load and Reload, but lost many of their fans along the way, people lamenting the metal aspect of the music as it continued on a trajectory of moody hard rock that was incredibly accessible. Megadeth would do the same with tepid and impotent releases such as Cryptic Writings and Risk. You know, even the mighty Iron Maiden struggled distinctly during this time with substandard releases like The X Factor and Virtual Eleven. All in all, if you were a fan of metal that was heavy and aggressive, it was becoming difficult to find, you know, what had been one of the more reliable genres. It just seemed to be fading. The commercial success of grunge and then new metal really threw a wet blanket on some more traditional types of heavy metal. There were still some lesser well-known types flourishing and then really coming into their own, but in many ways, it just wasn't the same anymore. Still, in the middle of all this change, there were some bands continuing, striving, and releasing some really kick-ass music, sometimes even in spite of the demands from their record labels. 
And one of those bands was Bay Area Thrash Legends Testament. Look, Testament were never the biggest of the thrash metal bands. They weren't officially in the big four of American thrash metal, though I think that there are plenty of us who would argue that they should have been, or in some ways were better than some in the big four. But for me personally, they will forever be my personal favorite thrash band. And one of the things that makes them so endearing to me was their reaction to 90s metal weirdness. So, you know, in summary, Metallica stopped being metal. So did Megadeth. Between grunge and later new metal, more traditional types of metal were floundering to some degree. There were certainly exceptions. We can look at the incredible success of Pantera, who became hugely popular during this time. And at least in my personal opinion, in part because they were so uncompromising in their approach. Still, there was Testament, toiling away, never nearly as big or well-known as many of those other bands. The early 1990s saw them changing their sound a little bit, and in 1992, they released The Ritual. It was more melodic, and sounded a little more mature and polished than previous albums. You know, if you first listened to it, you could certainly assume that they were trying to chase after the Metallica-esque success of the Black Album. However, while Metallica is a metal album, it's not a thrash metal album. The Ritual still retains much, if not all, of its thrashiness. Still, record companies saw the writing on the wall and came to the band demanding that they move in the direction of their peers and release an album that was even more commercially marketable, approachable, something that would get more radio time. They were looking for less metal, more hard rock, since that really what was moving the sales at the time. Testament, not immune to this at all, was approached by their record label. Founding member Eric Peterson stated that the record label came to them and asked them, even demanded, that they release an alternative record. Those who remember the 90s as vividly as I do will recall that alternative was just the catch-all for stuff that wasn't top 40, but also most of it definitely was not metal. I mean, we're talking bands like R.E.M., Oasis, things that didn't really fit into the top 40 pop, but also weren't really hard rock or metal, Alternative was a quick and easy little label to throw on them. Alternative really was huge, was selling millions of records. Nirvana's Nevermind sold more than 10 million copies in its lifetime. Compare that to The Ritual of 1992 in Testament's album sold since it was released, less than 500,000 copies. Clearly, one style was dominating. So from that standpoint, I could see where the suits wanted to try and tell Testament what they needed to do. And Testament responded. And what I think is one of the most metal ways possible. In 1994, Testament released the album Low. Now, this was two years after The Ritual, and it was the very first album after their record label had said, we want more accessible. From the very first seconds of the first and title track, Testament raised a huge, flaming middle finger to their record label. Lowe finds Testament at their most aggressive, their most pissed off, their most thrash metal in both music but also an ethos. 
In fact, Dog-Faced Gods from the album is pretty much just death metal. It is about as far from alternative as the band could have been. Well, you can guess what happened next. Atlantic Records dropped the band. They went on to form their own record label. And now, unfettered by the demands of the suits at Atlantic, Testament decided to get a little weird in their own way. Their follow-up album to Low was titled Demonic. And from the very get-go, you can tell you're listening to something a little different. In 1997, Demonic stomped onto the ears of unsuspecting listeners. And from that initial opening, something just is off. But not in the bad way that things were kind of off with grunge and new metal. Opening track Demonic Refusal begins with eerie sound effects as a somewhat muffled and distorted voice begins a countdown. The countdown simply says 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 6, 6. Suddenly, we are introduced full-on to Testament's version of death metal. Look, Demonic is not a thrash metal album, and for that reason, many people dislike it. There are even quite a few Testament fans who hate it. Opinions on the album vary widely. Just look across the internet, and you'll see review scores ranging anywhere from about zero all the way up to eight or nine out of ten. So why is this album so divisive? And more to the point, why do I love it so damn much? Look, let's just get something out of the way. Demonic is not the best album by Testament, not by a long shot. And it isn't a thrash metal album, and it shows. It lacks a lot of the speed and the energy that is most often associated with thrash metal. The riffs are more simplistic. There really aren't guitar solos with perhaps one exception. And I would say that the solo in the song New Eyes of Old is very, very short. And Chuck Billy growls almost the entire album, with very little of his trademark gravelly, aggressive singing. So yeah, it's weird. But it also stomps. It stomps hard. With Gene Hoagland on the kit, the drums pop and are so precise and powerful that it really makes me pay attention. Sure, the riffs aren't as intricate as they previously were, but they're heavy, thick, groovy, and threaten to snap necks. And while I agree that Chuck Billy is an absolute beast of a vocalist, I find his death growls compelling, even though they are fairly one note. Look, I like heavy music. This was Testament, just playing heavy music. 
This is the same year we got Reload from Metallica. That album is hard rock, and even some of the songs I wouldn't give the hard modifier to. Megadeth dropped Cryptic Writings, an absolute snooth fest of an album that is pretty much just album-oriented rock. So, at this point, at least half of the big four weren't even playing metal anymore, let alone anything as heavy as thrash or death metal. Testament, on the other hand, was carrying that flame and would continue to do so with their even more punishing subsequent release, The Gathering, that released two years later. Still, I have to admit that in 1997, I wasn't into metal the way I am now. I don't know how I would have reacted had I been a fan of the band at the time. And perhaps it's looking back on it from a retrospective point of view that colors my opinion. But I'll just say it. I think Demonic is a great album. It is so much better than many of what Testament's contemporaries were releasing at that time. And it showed a band committed to just playing heavy music, even despite intense pressure to do otherwise. In thinking about it, you know, I've listened to Demonic at least a dozen times in the last month or so, and it just doesn't get old to me. Testament went on to again release The Gathering, probably their most heavy and aggressive album. Due to some health issues and band issues, the band then went on a hiatus for a number of years, but came back together in the 2000s, and since then have just been on a tear. Albums like The Formation of Damnation, The Dark Roots of Earth, Brotherhood of the Snake, and their most recent album, Titans of Creation, are all awesome, aggressive, high-quality thrash metal songs and albums, things that far outperform, at least in my opinion, anything that has been released by the true classic Big Four of Thrash. Recently, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to see Testament live with Exodus and Death Angel in what they titled the Bay Strikes Back Tour. And here again, we had three excellent thrash bands from the Bay Area who've been continuing to put out aggressive, heavy, true thrash metal. I love these bands for this. And because of Testament's willingness to stick to their guns, to be a true metal band, and to give Atlantic Records that flaming middle finger, well, I love them. Because honestly, what is more metal than that? <laughs> 